0: that's actually one of my key points for that panel which is like n- never get high on your own supply because it is so easy as a founder you're you spend all of your time trying to convince yourself and others there's this is a billion dollar company <laughs> like we're going to grow huge whatever whatever and so i think your question whether you intended it this way or not specifically to this question was there is a distinction between what you infer and you, you, the insights you have and how you process them versus what is actually being given to you by the customer.
1: Welcome to Ad Creative, a new show from Pencil about the unexpected ideas that have changed the game for DDC founders and operators with a focus on actionable takeaways. I'm Chase Milseni. Thanks for joining us. On this episode, I'm joined by April Wachtel, founder and CEO of Cheeky Cocktails, We learned about her journey the last few years during COVID as a founder, how she pivoted into a new business, and how listening to her gut while taking insights from her customers has yielded incredible results. This one is incredibly fun. Enjoy. Excited this week for this episode of Ad Creative to be joined by the founder and CEO of Cheeky Cocktails, April Wachtel. Thank you for joining us, April.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Yeah, thanks. I want everyone to know, April and I have a bit of history. She was on, she was raising capital for her previous company, Swig and Swallow. And I had heard her on this podcast called The Pitch. And I reached out to her because I was really taken by kind of the way that she presented herself and her product. And I said, hey, how can I help? What is it with marketing? And so we went back and forth on a few things that we could work on together. So that's kind of, if you hear a bit of a rapport, that's where we know each other from. Well, great, April. I really appreciate it. Uh, Excited to, to dive in here. I know you've been in the, the beverage industry for a long time. I would love to hear how you got into it initially and kind of what led you to, um, to founding your companies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I basically grew up in food, beverage, and hospitality. I started off working in restaurants when I was 13 in Vermont. It was actually a, f- a family friend's bed and breakfast in Horse Farm. And I was really just kind of an industrious kid and just found this job a little bit on the side and just really enjoyed being productive. Fast forward... Many years. I'm still in restaurants. Went through high school. Went through college being in restaurants. Found at one restaurant in Boston that the general manager left the bartenders alone when she really like harassed the servers. And I was like, aha! I'm like, and they get to wear their their own clothes. So I was like, that is what I got to do. So um, so I got into bartending. Got into the craft cocktail world. Really got immersed into that um, into that world. And then moved to New York in 2011. Went. Further off the deep end, became a brand ambassador for Bacardi Rum, responsible for the portfolio in New York, but traveled nationally, started teaching cocktail classes. And so I've taught over 5,000 students how to make cocktails in person. I have over 7,000 students in my online courses. And it was really in those classes where I started realizing that people feel very passionately about hospitality. It's so meaningful to them. And they want to extend that, you know, those feelings of welcoming and sharing and like caring for other people through their food and beverage, right? It's like every culture around the world has traditions around food and beverage. Yet with cocktails in particular, they'd be excited, they'd be overwhelmed, and then they'd feel less than. And that was kind of like the the vibe of the craft cocktail world at the time. And still sometimes is, is very like, you know, guy with a mustache and suspenders, poo in your drink selection. When you just go in there, you're like, I just want to spend like $20 for a cocktail. And they're just like, they make you feel like crap. So I just started thinking, and this is probably around 2015, Like, how do I take this craft cocktail thing and make it more accessible for people in the home and make people feel really great about their skills and abilities, but also knowing that so many people in the home have no experience doing it. So like, how do you kind of foolproof this? So that led to the founding of my first business, Swig and Swallow. It was refrigerated mixers sold half full and you just add the spirits to the mixer bottle to complete the drink, which is, Chase, as you said, how we met. And then I ran that for probably four years, realized that there were, you know, there was a laundry list of things that I wanted to fix about the business. And I just had this like long, <laughs> long list of things I needed to yeah. fix. And then it just came to a head one day, had a terrible production run. And I just was like, this is untenable. And so I took several months to myself to decide, do I still care about this thing? Do I still think this is viable? Do I still think the opportunity is large enough? And I came out of it saying, I still love this thing. I still think it really adds a lot of meaning and value to people's lives. And that was what led to pulling it apart, renaming it Cheeky, completely redoing the product line and launching it to launching it. Interestingly, into the beginning of COVID in April of 2020, (laughs) which was interesting timing for a relaunch. It's kind of fascinating, right? Like
1: rebranding is one thing. Then relaunching is another thing. And then relaunching into the what anyone would think is headwinds of COVID. But I suspect there's a bit of tailwind there because of the fact that everyone was at home. So I'm curious if you could dive a little bit deeper into what happened once you launched. Because I I would suspect because you already had distributor relationships, plus you had done essentially V1 of this you had a framework of what you needed to do. It was more, you had to go into the engine and tinker with a few things that just you didn't have right the first time. So what what happened once um, you relaunched uh, post-COVID?
0: Yeah, so what happened was my initial plan was to launch very casually in April of 2020, completely when we had no idea that COVID was a thing. And given the way I slapped it together the first time, which was, you know, I learned how to use the Adobe suite to make all of our assets. I learned how to do photography. I learned how to build a website. I learned some really basic things about marketing, like all all of these things. And obviously about manufacturing, supply chain, all those things. So because it was so sort of slapped together the first time, my decision was, I'm going to do this slowly and I'm going to do it right. And there's no rush. So of course, you know, March of 2020 happens. We realize that this is really a thing and it's coming to the U S and my immediate reaction was, okay, I've got to go faster. And so funny enough, did everything super fast (laughs) like the first time, but I knew how to do it this time, right? So I'd had that practice, got product in bottles. I Just to be clear, I had the trademark on Cheeky already. We had the facility because we had been in that building for several years prior and we had been in that exact space for a year and a half maybe with the other business. I had some of the bottles in-house, there was no label design, and I was working with an agency that was just taking their sweet time uh, getting all the assets to me. And I was like, I just can't, I can't wait another month to get the design back. So, slapped together some labels, slapped together some photography, slapped together a website. Whole thing was like, oh, this looks like good, you know, branding. And ultimately, it is almost exactly what we have today. It's like we've only made a few sort of minor um, revisions and edits to it. So that was the beginning for the first probably six months. It was literally by myself, hand sanitizing and hand juicing every piece of citrus, making everything in tiny little pots, labeling, doing all fulfillment, everything. And then we got some really crazy acceleration in the second half of the year. So by the way, I think to anyone who thinks about starting a business or selling really low-priced items that is actually really meaningful revenue, especially with zero marketing dollars and, and zero actual help. <laughs> like, it literally just you. So that yeah. was so that was 2020. Uh, we got a lot of systems and processes in place. We started working with a couple of different co-manufacturers. We had some really large orders from primarily spirits companies, subscription kit companies, et cetera. Um, and then really 2021 was where we started selling not only wholesale, but also specifically into brick and mortar. And, um, we kind of, honestly, we kind of just coasted on that because from day one, this thing was, was bootstrapped and end of 2021 is when I started going out to speak to investors because I was like, okay, we have something that is working. We have something that people love. We have something that people are continually referring. Now, how do we actually build the business and drive the business as opposed to just responding to incoming inbound requests?
1: Yeah, that's super fascinating. I'm always I'm always interested when when brands have uh both things running. Um, because you know, we we talk to a lot of native D C brands. So I've been saying this a lot recently, but native DDC brands, what was old has now become new. So a lot of them are using mailers and wanting to do TV and wanting to get in brick and mortar stores or have their own. And then a lot of the old DDC or uh brick and mortar stores want to have their own kind of digitally native presence. And yes. so it's kind of like we're all just becoming the same. Um, and it's just, what was your entry point? And all of these are channels. So I'm I'm curious for you having, you know, your online store, did having the brick and mortar have a nice halo effect? Because you weren't, if you're not running any advertising, were you seeing inbound come to say like, oh, we tried this. Now we want to kind of get on a subscription or, or something else where they could interact with the brand more directly?
0: Yes, there is definitely a halo effect. I would say just as much from the stores actively promoting us. Like they, you know, they're promoting us in their social, and they're many of them are also advertising with our products and their advertising. So I think that that has allowed us to get a lot farther. I mean, we don't do any subscription. We tried it. Technically you could you could sign up for one right now on our site, but people don't. So um so that was just something honestly from day one, I looked at certain there's a lot of businesses that I know of that are whatever, cocktail kit subscription kits, where I understand why that model exists and I understand why it's appealing to end consumer. But from day one, that was never what I wanted to be. What I want us to be is a staple addition to your home bar cart, or if you're using us behind the bar, something that you come to rely on. So we want to be there. I mean, it's interesting, and I still actually have questions about this because most brands you, th- you see, I think, are trying to be the focus of everybody's attention. I jokingly said this at one of our staff trainings the other day, like we want to be the side piece, you know, <laughs> like we like we actively want to be like the brand on the side that's making everybody else look good and we are there to enhance and support, which makes it very interesting the question of like, well, how do you actually promote yourself? If you're doing samplings with a spirits brand or non-alc spirits brand, people probably have more questions about the other things, Right. So it's something that I constantly think about, but if we can continue to ingrain ourselves in the consumer's mind or in the corporate buyer's mind as indispensable, that will achieve what we're trying to achieve. And to the question of subscription kits, I mean, it's it's interesting because we do have people. We have a lot of of customers reordering, lots of repeat customers. But what's interesting is it is what I expected it to be, which is like, they'll order one kit now and they'll order like $500 or $1,000 worth of product for the party that they're having, which it's not as reliable or predictable, obviously, as you know, monthly recurring subscription revenue, but it is the way I imagine people would be using it. And I also think it's, we don't want to impose our product on them such that they feel like, oh, now I have to cancel and I can no longer have a relationship with you as a business.
1: I think that's really smart. There is something a bit onerous with with forcing someone into a subscription and then the mental psychology post-cancellation of, oh, I can't go back. And so I think it's really smart to say, okay, well, we understand we need to just meet them where they are and essentially say, well, we know that, say, eventually you have enough data where you are be able to say, okay, we know people are going to order three times in a year. So like in our mind, we say it's just a, or say they order quarterly. It's just a quarterly recurring customer that we can come to expect that we can deliver against and we don't know what maybe the AOV is each time but like say blended it's 500 or something so we can like count on everyone each customer who gets the second purchase to be worth two thousand dollars a year it becomes something like a model that makes a lot of sense but I do think there is an imposition that a lot of brands are putting on people I do think one thing you you said I'm curious how you guys are how you've thought about it when you dig deeper into like how do I market this product is there are a lot of B2B companies that have to sit underneath a brand to make it work. So, you know, you have, you have a lot of say infrastructure kind of products that make your products. So like we have a huge amount of things underneath the hood that allow pencil to work. We don't advertise any of those things. They're not advertised, but like we, as the brand go seeking them out. And so how do you essentially? It's not even about the product. It's almost about the feeling people have when the product is a part of their lives. So you're saying someone orders two thousand dollars worth of product for a party. It's more about you want to have the most kick-ass party where people are having a good time and having amazing drinks. Like where we should be helping you do that, right? So how are you thinking about being a part of people's lives? Is it more of an emotional thing rather than a rational thing? Because I think a lot of people, like you said, want to be front and center. So mm-hmm. I think that's interesting.
0: Honestly, we're still. Learning that, what I would say is, uh, it's funny because I just today, and the date of today is May eighteenth, twenty twenty two. I had a conversation with my business coach today. Actually, he sold his um, CPG company to one of the large CPG conglomerates. Let's say in the past couple of years. Anyway, he's a lot of experience in the space. Um, but I was running something by him today, and something. And this is again me just speaking super honestly and transparently. The name cheeky. I think it's going to be absolutely key to our success and we have not leaned into it at all. Like I get really nervous about it and the reason is we have as I've mentioned all of these corporate customers, we have you know big spirits companies buying from us, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies, co- you know, and it really concerns me. Like if we push it a little too far such that it's inappropriate for like their context, are we going to lose all that business? That being said, like from day 1, the tagline and we're going to modify this. But the tagline I had that had just popped into my brain was cheeky because cocktail shouldn't be a pain in the ass. And (laughs) it's again, saying the word ass on a website or on a box or whatever, it is questionable for sure. And I'm not going to go that far, but I'm trying to figure out the right way to get that a close approximation to that tagline on our cases. At least the bottles are still going to be super clean and super minimalist. Um, We have a new, a, a new logo that's, Going to roll out in the next couple of weeks. And our, our branding is, is, is coming together. It's going to be like a lot tighter than it is right now. But that's something that we just have not leaned into at all. So, what I'm dealing with here is we've got the really functional, simplistic, minimalist aspect of the brand, which is when we say it's lime juice, it is literally 100% lime juice. There is nothing else in there, like nothing, nothing, nothing. And so people are like, oh, but it's lime juice. And I'm like, yeah, well, I mean, that's the point. Like, you're looking for lime juice and you can't find what we have anywhere else. Because everything is preservatives or you know, there's always something weird about it. So that's one thing is like the product itself is so intuitive. But on the other side, it's like, well, again, how do you get people to love you? And I think that's where like the humor part comes in. Cause like this is supposed to be fucking funny. Like that's like it's supposed to be a fun experience. You're supposed to be enjoying yourself with friends and family, and it's supposed to be approachable. And so I think to answer your question, I think up until this point, it's been functional and people have chosen us because it's premium, all natural, no preservatives or additives of any kind. And it looks, the the label is minimalist and premium. I think the way that we will continue to build an audience and consumers that love us is all of the other things that I've just been too nervous to do. And at this point, I'm like, it's too risky not to do it. Honestly, it's, we're at a point where we really are hopefully going to start accelerating at a rapid rate and we can't afford to just be kind of like towing the line between like polite humor and like kind of meeting everybody's needs. So hopefully this goes well. I don't know.
1: <laughs> so the bring me to something that I think I have now been talking to a few founders kind of digging into is did your, does your previous experience make you feel like you have a better weather vein for where the forks in the road are because essentially you, you know you did swig and swallow and you said like okay we got to this point that i needed to recalibrate and do something do something a little bit different you're saying okay we're at a fork in the road with the branding we need to just you need to decide and do it in a certain way to build not just a functional audience but like a brand love audience that essentially can expand past kind of where we are today it's like the biggest step change do you think your previous experience has given you a better ability to sense when those things are happening than maybe you would have had, say, four or five, six years ago?
0: Yes. I would say embedded into in that sort of hesitant yes is it's not just experience, but I think it's the experience of learning to trust my own gut on this. And this is something I still, I think it's, people often say this, that innovation typically does not come from within the industry. It typically comes from an outsider who's able to see a different perspective And I think that there's the industry corporate side of me that's like, be scared, be very afraid. You know, like you're going to lose all these customers. And then the other side of me being like, but like I can, I feel that people feel this way. And I feel this way. Honestly, I am not a good host. And this this is the sort of product that I need to help me because I don't, like, again, I really deeply care about my guests having a good time, but I am not necessarily great at attending to their, physical needs at the same time as I'm talking to them. Bizarre because I was a bartender, but it's, it's a totally different thing if you're in your own home trying to enjoy yourself. So I think that there's that, but I also think that here's where my experience in the in the industry is helping is I'm looking at the breadth of competitors, quote unquote, in the industry, and you see hundreds of brands that are artisanal syrups brands, craft syrups brands mixer brands where it's everyone has a margarita everyone has a cosmopolitan everyone has like there's the the classics and we know why they have them because those are cocktails with pole. But when I look at who either has stuck out and broken through the noise or why hasn't anyone, basically what I look at is this fever tree and Q mixers on the carbonated side have broken through fever tree three and a half billion dollar market cap global business, obviously public company. Q we don't actually know what the revenue is because they're a private company but they've raised over $50 million to date. So that would suggest that they are convincing a lot of people who would otherwise be hesitant, meaning they probably have real revenue. I mean, we know that they do. And then there's Skinny Girl. And I think actually, if you remember, and if anyone is interested in listening to the Pitch podcast where I pitched Swig and Swallow, I listened, I re-listened to the investor feedback from that probably 20, 30 times. And one of the key pieces of feedback, actually, that Jillian, one of the investors, gave me was, she said, Skinny Girl, which we think probably sold to Beam Centauri um, for like $100 million is, I think, the figure that people roughly think. They're like, she broke through the noise because she had a promise of less, of it was fewer calories. And she said, and I can repeat this verbatim, she said, I don't know what the promise is here. And I, I really took that to heart. And again, I thought about it a thousand different ways. And I think in my case with Cheeky, we are promising you're going to have a good time and it's not going to be a fucking pain in the ass. <laughs> you know, like, And I, I cannot say that as much as I can think that the other brands are delicious. I can't name a single mixer brand that I know of where that is the promise. I think somebody who's done this really well in beverage is Liquid Death. Yeah. It's bubbly water in a can. That is all it is. But they're just like, we're gonna like we're gonna seem like so hardcore. And we're gonna just like lean into this like hardcore metal, like whatever thing. And it works. And it's just proof that some people do want the really diluted vanilla bland, whatever. But there's all these other people who are like, I want my choice of purchase to say something about me. And in this case, I think with Liquid Death and I think with Cheeky, what I think that is, and what should be is like, I don't take myself too seriously. Yes. I like high quality products. Yes. I have a sense of humor, you know, like it's, yeah. so, so I think that that is to, to answer your question about, is it kind of like functional or is it emotional? Um, and does your experience contribute to it? I think it's a combination of all of these things, which it's like, yes, industry experience, yes, experience running these businesses, but moreover being able to see these behaviors happening. And mm-hmm. really trusting my gut as to what that actually means.
1: That's really fascinating. I just had a chat with someone who uh, is a consultant in the DDC space. And essentially his hypothesis is audience niche is going to be the most important thing that kind of breaks other brands away from other ones. Essentially what you just yeah. said about uh, li- liquid death. So my wife and I were doing an exercise. I'm like, liquid death is cool. Like I brought a box on like from Target. Look, this is, this is dope. And I was like, what would the female version of this be? And she's like, well, it should be like Fountain of Youth or something. And <laughs> uh, I was just cracking up. I was cracking up. I, I, bought, I bought him a look. And she's like, are you drinking a beer? And I'm like, you think so, don't you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, when you get on a call, everyone knows what it is. But you've essentially come to, I know what's going on in the market. And I know what my audience is responding to, um, which is this is simple. It helps me have a great time have people been telling you that? Is that something you get through the reviews or is that just kind of like a feeling that you have internally? Because I think as we kind of focus on, hey, okay, there are all these tactics that we can go with. Okay, you're going to market on these channels. You're going to, you know, have these influencers talk about you. But like, there is a halo of like, this is what the brand needs to be. There's obviously what you think. What have your, you know, what have your customers been telling you that has been kind of helping you shape this vision for going forward and and wanting to dive kind of completely headfirst into it?
0: It's a good question. So I'm actually sitting on this panel at Bar Convent, Brooklyn um, for Park Street University. It's like very, very beverage industry focused. It's all trade focused. And that's actually one of the points. It's it's a panel on data collection and building a data-driven brand. And that's actually one of my key points for that panel, which is like never get high on your own supply because it is so easy as a founder. you You spend all of your time trying to convince yourself and others there's this is a billion dollar company (laughs) and like we're going to grow huge whatever whatever and so I think your question whether you intended it this way or not specifically to this question was there is a distinction between what you infer and you, you the insights you have and how you process them versus what is actually being given to you by the customer so I think it's a it's a great question to answer the question Our customers have continued to say it's delicious, it's easy to use, and everybody enjoyed themselves or had a great time. I think that then when we see the numbers, because I look at every single order that comes in, there, you know, we have our methods of data collection, which we're a tiny little brand, right? So we've got to be very scrappy about it, but we figure out different ways to understand like referrals and we also do just like self-administered question of like, or the customer chooses, you know, how you heard about us, or you were returning customer, all that. And in that, not only do we see a lot of returning customers, but as I said, typically the orders get bigger, like bigger, 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 bigger. And so I think I don't know how many different ways you can interpret that other than they found something that works for them and it's intuitive enough for them to use in larger quantities. That could be wrong. That could be off base. We do have, by the way, we do have dialogue with all of our corporate customers we have like we you know we do solicit feedback we do um we do have like a couple different review collection like one for b2b and one for d2c but overwhelmingly people return we have a lot of corporate customers so for example in um i think it was in 2021 we realized we were like oh wow like this organization had purchased from us in 2020 they referred us like for whatever 500 cust- 500 um, employees then that organizer referred us to another one. Then that organizer referred us to another one. Then that organizer was like, it was a recipient of one of those previous kits, told us that, referred us to another one. And then one of their recipients, it was like this really crazy thing where we're like, whoa, like 10 degrees of separation. And people realize just in their experience that they could then replicate that for their audience. So again, we need to do a lot more qualitative, data like focus groups data collection but from all the methods of data collection that we do use that seems to be intuitive easy to use easy to share
1: oh that's great i think that's um th- that's the dream right is you just see kind of a 10 degrees of separation without having any marketing dollar spend i mean this is kind of exactly what every ddc brand especially today kind of dealing with the headwinds of data collection the you know the platforms not being able to deliver what they were you yeah. know two years ago in terms of uh, customer acquisition costs so you have this engine running you like you said at the end of last year started raising capital for when you're ready to go to the next stage of growth kind of what do you picture in your mind being the thing that you focus on? Because obviously there's a few different things, right? It's getting, you know, your production infrastructure set up, getting more, you know, salespeople and distribution in terms of other stores, or it's ramping up the, you know, the e-commerce channel with, you know, having a team that's focused on growth on, you know, all the paid social platforms, et cetera. Where do you see it going? What's what's kind of your big idea for, for the next stage of, uh, of Cheeky?
0: What I would love to see, and I'm phrasing it that way because we've been finding out, obviously as a new brand, but also during covid there's a lot of little pebbles that can get, (laughs) you know, uh, disrupt the the way the wagon's traveling. What I would love to see and what our intention is, what we're trying to do right now, is build up a layer of retail such that we are profitable. And from that, in my opinion, the absolute biggest opportunity in this space is either selling direct-to-spirits brands or collaborating with them, selling to a third party, and pooling marketing resources. We solve very significant problems for spirits companies, because what I'll tell you, and this is just a little bit uh, that I include in my investor pitch, the spirits market in the United States, 75 to $80 billion annually. 30% of those sales occur in what's called the on-premise, or what people would consider food service, bars, restaurants, hotels, et cetera, places where people make a drink for you. And that is where spirits companies recruit new consumers with cocktail serves. So, if you taste a penicillin for the first time, at some point in that sort of discovery journey, that will have been the efforts of a spirits company, getting their brand into people's hands, et cetera. What's interesting is 100% minus that 30%, that 70% of the sales still occur in retail, like in brick and mortar retail. And so, what happens there is we know as consumers can't replicate those cocktails. Our syrups and juices replicate the essential syrups and juices found behind cocktail bars globally. And as far as we know, there's nobody else doing what we are doing, which is making that shelf stable accessible to the consumer and the home. And so what we're trying to enable is we're trying to connect the dots between the cocktails that you get in bars and what you make in the home. Like if you could, if the consumer could easily replicate the exact same thing that was advertised to them, and they want to, by the way, many of them want to. Um, I think that that would be a really huge win. And so what became obvious, though, because we did do a couple of these big deals with spirits companies at the beginning, it was that these are all big. They're like the smallest test for these guys is huge, like huge for us. Comes with a lot of um, capital issues, meaning that typically these big guys are paying net 90, net 120 days. They're unpredictable. They're always in a rush as much as we love and respect them, you know, it's like they might expect the product. Like, for example, one of our orders, they needed the product in market and we didn't get the PO until a few days before, meaning we needed to make it, ship it, but we didn't even have the order. And so to manage that as a small business is impossible. So I decided we need to get to a certain scale and then we can really be better in the running for those opportunities. So
1: first of all, I think it's so interesting kind of hearing the intricacies of every business and kind of what makes each business go because each thing has such a... All business is the same, but the there's a certain unique infrastructure to every single way that you're going to make a business grow. You said something really fascinating that we we talk about a lot is like being cash flow positive and how how that affects kind of everything in your business. And so I'm curious, have you had to turn some of these opportunities down because you say like we are not ready to be able to service them? Or is it kind of like, this is game day, we have to make it work and find a way? Because net 90, net 120 is like a non-starter for a lot of people,
0: Yeah, As it should, I mean, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, so we have had to turn a number of deals down where people wanted to pay, for example, like many people, many businesses could see, you know, selling product at a discounted rate as, Oh, it's a marketing expense. In our case, we're like, no, no, we actually have to be profitable on every unit sold. Like that's just our life. That's our reality. And so because of that, we absolutely had to say no to a bunch of large orders. I think we were actually, we a little bit dodged a bullet because there was one large order. It was like a quarter million dollar order within certainly in 2020. So we were barely a business. We were like a little baby business. And that opportunity, ultimately, the decision was made for us because the Spirits brand could not source the 50 mls of their product because of the supply chain issues. Because that ultimately, like it was one thing to do the the deal that we had done with them previously, which was smaller, and we could actually float the cash and all that stuff. But for a little business to put that money out there without actually having a PO in hand, and then hope that you're going to get paid you know, 120 days or later longer. It's just untenable. So yeah, I mean, I I think one of the big learnings I've had as a small brand owner is we all feel like we're in this terrible rush and there's absolutely cause to be speedy and feel like urgency is, I, I mean, it's, it is important. Nobody gets more time, but at the same time, I think feeling that you desperately need to grow can also be very dangerous. And we've seen this, again, you live the D2C life, right? So we've seen all of these D2C businesses raise huge amounts of money, scale super rapidly, and then blow up because whatever, they didn't retain customers, they weren't profitable for like three, five orders, you know, things like that. Customer acquisition costs like through the roof. And I think in many of those cases, if they were able to go a little bit slower and to really find product market fit before scaling, some of them could probably still be around and be profitable, successful national or global businesses. And so that's something that I think in my several years of just wondering about this, like running the v- previous version of my business and doing a lot of like research and listening to podcasts and talking to other founders for years, I think I formed my own beliefs around what this looks like. And honestly, I think that we could make an argument for saying we're going to lean in super heavy on D2C, but what D2C is for us now is a place for people to experience the brand a little bit more fully than they are in retail. And such that if somebody can't source it in retail where they are, they absolutely can order from our site and have a wonderful experience doing so. And that's what it's been for us. Again, I, I have higher hopes we're going to start spending now that we've got some money in the bank, we're going to start spending to drive traffic there a, a bit more. But such, you know, so far, it's just been, it's been that for us.
1: It's a really, um, I think it's a salient point, which is if you know your unit economics and what they need to be to kind of, like you said, float the business, it provides a lot of clarity about what you will and won't do. And it's, yes. it's fascinating because, the market that we were in or the world that we were in over, say, the, say the last five years, let's just call it since like 2015, upward trend, continuous uh, bull market. Everyone was like, okay, we're just going to spend, 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 spend. So now you go into Twitter and everyone's like, well, you have to think about first dollar profitability and payback period. Yeah. And it's really funny how kind of like everyone turned on a dime and it's like, well, this was always there. It's just the capital that we were all raising dried up. And so we had to be thinking like this. And so it's almost a bit of a superpower that you kind of have built this framework for yourself to say, okay, no, we're going to be profitable no matter what we do to make sure that we can grow in the right way. But the point you made, which is growth for growth's sake, can be just—it's like every sword, right? Every sword cuts both ways, and yes. it can be a real death knell to your business, which is a lot of people are dealing with right now. I mean, I talk yes. to them; uh, we see, we read about it. It's. People are struggling because they didn't set themselves up to understand what the the downside risk of kind of playing playing with fire is.
0: Yeah. No, I mean it my heart goes out to all of these businesses that are that are in that world right now dealing with I I mean, I think again, I, I'm not sure if all of your audience will know this, but you know, with the privacy settings changing for iOS last year in 2021, that really messed up like probably every D2C company's business, right? Because you can no longer target your customers in the way that you could before with the accuracy. I mean, it's funny because I think when you said the sword cuts both ways, I mean, I could make a great argument for what we have and I stand by it. And I think it's, I'm glad that we have it. You could also say, oh, well, it would have been easier to raise money if we did spend on that before. Got it. When like, you know, when you could target people super well. And then people are like, oh, great, like you got like gazillion dollars in revenue. Like, of course, we want to just pour money on you. But then ultimately, what the situation we could end up in, were that the case, is, oh, look at that, our sales dropped because we can no longer target our customers. And then we're stuck in this fundraising cycle where we've raised at a certain valuation. We got to go down. And by the way, this is not my reality. I'm just saying this for any listeners tuning in if you raise a certain valuation and then the next valuation is lower, it's called a down round, and then you have more trouble fundraising and then you are really potentially close to being out of business. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many ways you could kind of slice this and dice it and be like, oh, well, this would have been a great scenario, this one. And again, I think that, um, you know, we tried, or we have tried, like, what if we just grow really fast? And for my disposition, it just, it just feels wrong. And I, do think that when you do spend the time to understand your customer and truly understand their experience with the product, what's working, what's not working, and then you find that real product market fit, then I think it probably just doesn't feel as forced and it absolutely will be a lot more sustainable.
1: Well, that brings me to our final section because that's a button perfectly on kind of (laughs) what we're talking about. I'm always really curious... With founders about where you get your best ideas. So for instance, one answer for me is like when I'm driving and there's no music on or anything, I, I like mm-hmm. just that kind of tunnel of white noise allows me to think really, really deeply. So I'm curious, how do you, you know, how do you get your best ideas?
0: Um, I think that there's a few ways. I think really well when I'm moving. I also think really well. So walking, biking, rock climbing, whatever. I love to listen to podcasts. Typically, just with really intelligent people. Sometimes they're about business, and oftentimes they are. So, like, I love how I built this. That podcast. I listen to some Gary V. I listen to the Twenty Minute VC. I listen to other things that are completely, you know, unrelated. Also, but um, Tony Robbins. I've been listening to a lot of like Tony Robbins and uh, Jim Rohn recently. And so, I think it just depends. I think where I can have like my brain moving and my body moving are the best context for me. And then I like to change up my environment also. So I, again, that's probably why I like the walking, biking thing works really well. But I think when you're just, when your brain is in a little bit of a flow state or like a sort of peaceful state, and then like you you just are surprised by what you see in your environment, I think that that's been a great catalyst for creative thought for me.
1: Yeah, I think con- like almost, it's like you say context shifting. It's like you almost need yeah. to change. Your context to be able to see. I mean, we all. I always say, like, you need to open your aperture. Yes, uh, and and that's predicated on doing something different. So, like, if you ever listen to Huberman Lab, he talks a lot about like, oh, I'm gonna, I'll send you a link after this. He's yeah. incredible, but essentially, like, to get uh, the circuits functioning in your in your brain really quickly in the morning, um, you need to go out and uh, experience sunlight so that it yeah. that kind of awakens, awakens you. Anyway, it's kind of like that context shifting, yeah, uh, like that. Next one what do you feel is kind of your biggest, like your strongest quality, I guess? Um, Or or what's the thing that um, you find has been your superpower?
0: I actually probably would say creativity, either curiosity or creativity. And I think, I mean, just this actually ties into your previous question. I just started an improv class. Like I was feeling really creatively stifled. I think because again, the stressors of running a business and the fact that I've been at our facility every single day for years, <laughs> you know, there's just a certain, like I have not been on vacation for years. You know, I think that, uh, you need to seek out different sources of inspiration. And, you know, I have a podcast, I've tried singing a bunch of different types of dance, musical instruments. i have done all of these things and I was looking down the list at what things I had not done. And I was like, you know what, this scares me. This is interesting definitely want to, you know, want to be more comfortable on the humorous side, not strictly the serious business side. Cause that's, I engage in a lot of like serious business. <laughs> um, and so I, I leaned into that and I've had a couple of classes so far and it's amazing. I think the, the willingness to try things that are, that I'm not good at, or I've never done before. And the curiosity of like, what does it feel like? And what does it do to you once you do the thing? Means that I come back to these other things more creative and and more refreshed.
1: Like ha- being able to allow yourself to have a sense of play allows yes. you to kind of yeah exp- again it's the aperture thing right we all get yeah. so myopic about when you when you're looking at you know a square on the ground you all you see is the square and the square becomes smaller the more you look at it actually yeah uh, yeah that's that's a great call out I think we're all going to have to take an on a, a uh, improv class now that sounds like a lot of fun
0: let me tell you it is mind blowing. Like, yeah. and, and I'll just, I, I know that we're like near our time here, but just to, yeah. just to lean in on one thing here, I was terrified, super yeah. anxious. Like I, I do a lot of public speaking. I was so fucking anxious. <laughs> so within like two minutes of the, of the class starting the exercise that the teacher had us do on stage, he, you know, brings 14 people up and we're all in the circle. And within seconds, you just know they're asking you to be vulnerable and put yourself out there. And if you don't, it won't work. at all and so if you're gonna be there you have to do it and so you just see like fear on everybody else's face and then you start making these funny noises and moving your body in weird ways and everybody does it too and it's just like the exchange of trust and that openness i mean i think when you said what did you say the willingness to play what what
1: yeah yeah like a, a willingness to like have like be at play
0: so yeah. I think to be at play you have to have that feeling of safety and mm-hmm. I think that that was something amazing that they did and I think that that has to work or has to be the case with improv in general. So I highly recommend it.
1: Yeah. It's I mean it's kind of I know we're close but it's kind of antithetical to everything we have to do in business which is like puff up your chest say like I'm going to kick your fucking ass uh yeah. give me money, you know, this business is the best business in the world. But I think there is something to helping founders who are dealing with high, such high stress situations get a little bit out of their own heads. Yes. And this may be some practices that VCs and business coaches and stuff force people to do because all this other stuff is so serious and so um, so difficult. So my last question, because we're up against it, is what would you tell your younger self or a young founder that you were giving advice about if they said, hey, I want to start you know, a spirits company Um, and, you know, say, this is my angle. This is my unique angle. How would you coach them or the coaching that you didn't get back in the day?
0: I would say, make sure you love it. I mean, that's, that is thing one. And I did not pay myself the entire time I ran Swig and Swallow. And by the way, I was working, like I was, I forgot to mention, I was consulting for Diageo for five years also, which was fine. It's a whole thing. but. But I didn't pay myself for, I don't know, five years, four or five years on the business. And for the business, every single week, I was probably working 60, 70 hours for years. And by the way, I still don't pay myself much at all. I mean, I pay myself, but not a lot. And so there are so many things you can do with your life and your time. And if you're gonna start something like this, it's gotta be a labor of love because it's going to take a long time before you get anything Material in return, and that's it.
1: Well, that is fantastic. I want you to let me know if you think there's anyone we should talk to um, in your network that would, you know, help other people learn just like you've been doing uh, here. So I really appreciate your time. Um, yeah, this was this was amazing. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for having me, and congratulations on the podcast. I'm so excited to hear all the yeah. other interviews.
1: Great, thank you. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ad Creative from Pencil. We hope you enjoyed our chat and learned a thing or two that can help you grow your business and think more creatively. If you have someone you think we should interview, just hit me up on Twitter. Also a small favor, if you could please share and review this, we want our guests' amazing insights to reach as much of the community as possible. And your ratings help. Till next time, add some creativity into your life. Thanks.